of the several audacious claims of Christianity, one of them is this, you can change. That a full-grown adult can experience change. That even when we're set in our ways, and our ways have been ingrained in us by years of practice, by catastrophic experiences, by very powerful home lives, that in, the, in a sea of external pressures to be who we are, Christianity holds out this audacious claim that a person can experience true, deep, inner character change. That you don't have to be who you are. That you don't have to resign yourself to your darker demons, to your addictions, to your weaknesses. Now, this is a really audacious thing to claim. Now, in Christianity, there are a number of different resources for how change occurs in a human life. True change. Not superficial, but deep character level transformation. One of those I'm not going to talk about. It's this. Christianity invites people into a way of living that involves making some very conscious choices that become a certain set of habits that as time goes by, those habits shape the desires of your heart. And as time goes by, it is the heart's desires that form our character. See, the problem with a lot of us is not that we do bad things, it's that we want to do bad things. And our deep need is not to change what we do, but it's to change our compulsions, our deep desires. I'm not going to talk about that this morning. In fact, we deal with that rather extensively in our new members class called Essentials. That's one critical piece of the matrix of change that Christianity holds out. A whole set of practices that become habits, that shape the desires of the heart, that transform the character. But there's another aspect to how change occurs according to the Christian confession. And it's when you no longer have a concept of God, but instead you have an encounter with God. And when God goes from being merely a concept shaped in your own image to a real God that you really encounter, and this external great majesty bigger than you are, uncontainable, who created the whole universe and all that the universe is. When you encounter this God, change is possible. And that's the aspect of change that our passages of Scripture direct us to this morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 6. It's in the Old Testament. If you need to use your table of contents, that's fine. 
There's no shame. Isaiah chapter 6. What we're looking at this morning is one person that encountered God and it truly impacted them with change, changed their lives. Isaiah is this person's name, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now skip down to verse 3. Listen to this song that the seraphim, which we're not exactly sure what that what they are. There's some sort of angel. The word seraphim in its etymology means fire. Etymology is a dangerous way to define words. Though. You know this, don't you? You know the, the word hussy in the 17th century meant housewife. <laughs> so if you use that word according to its etymology today, you know, Mike, how's your hussy? You know, this wouldn't go well, would it? <laughs> Donna, we don't go for this. Uh, no, no. no. <laughs> I'll look over here now. <laughs> Etymology is a very dangerous way to try to define words. It's almost all we have to go on for this word. So perhaps these things made out of fire. They're flying around the Lord. And they're shouting out. Holy, holy, holy. Which in the Hebrew language this was written in is the superlative. They didn't have the EST ending. They couldn't say prettiest or holiest. They also didn't have the word most, M-O-S. They didn't have, in order for us to say something is the biggest, we either use the word most or the, or the E-S-T ending. They would repeat a word three times. That's the way they established the superlative. So what these, angel, these things are saying is the holiest. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now that word glory... It's one of those words that we've used so frequently and so loosely that we've lost it. It literally means weighty. Weightiness. The whole earth is full of God's weightiness. Look, look at it this way. My, the way I prefer translating verse 3, I think the best way to translate verse 3, it's slightly ambiguous, that last phrase, is this. The fullness of the earth is the glory of God. So the weight of the universe, that gives you a sense of the weight of God. That you want to know how weighty God is. How substantial and all-encompassing God is. It's the fullness of the earth. It's the only thing that can give you a sense of that. So take everything in this world, everything in this universe, all the galaxies that, that we're now able to discover. Take all of that. Take all of your joys and all of your sorrows. Take all of the beauties you've experienced. The beauty of a grandchild. Take all of this stuff of life and it is still not as weighty. It is still not as permanent. It is not as real as God is. Compared to anything and everything added up together, God is more real 
more permanent. He is more weighty. He matters more than everything. There's a pastor in New York by the name of Tim Keller. I like the way he digs into this concept. He says, if you drop an object into a body of water and the object is heavier than the water, there's a flood. If you drop an object heavier than ice onto ice, what happens to the ice? It breaks and shifts. When God comes down into your life, he is heavier than everything else. He displaces your life. Everything in your life shifts around this weightier object. He changes things. All the furniture gets rearranged. That's what happened to Isaiah. Everything has changed. In fact, every time someone in the Bible experiences the reality of God, not the concept of God. This is something I want us to dig around on this morning. The problem is that for many of us, we... We let the concept of God displace the real God. But the reality of God is as different from the concept of God as the reality of my wife is. Different from the concept of my wife. In scripture, when someone encounters the reality of God, there's a massive shifting. Reoccurring occurs. Because God's glory is heavier than everything else. He matters more. I think about some of you that I, you've told me about how you met God. And how things in your life shifted. It's hard for some of us to grasp this who have been raised in the church. I don't remember not knowing the Father. I don't remember not believing. I don't remember not having Christ at the center. I mean, there have been moments in my life where I've drifted into idolatry. But for some of you, when John Hay talks about coming to know Christ, when Mike talks about how he came to know Christ, you get this sense what happens when a weightier object enters a person's history. He matters more. He's more permanent. He's more impressive. He's more powerful. He's more weighty. He's more real than everything else. Now think about how this helps us to distinguish between the concept of God and the reality of God. The difference between you and me agreeing with the general notion of God and actually meeting with the God of the universe. At this point, when Isaiah walked into the temple for worship, he was like many of us this morning. He believed in God. That's part of the reason he was there at the temple in worship. Weekly church attendance was part of his routine. But on this particular day, wonder of wonders, something happened in worship that he didn't expect. He encountered God. Not the concept of God, but God himself, the reality of God. And like this massive boulder falling into a pond, everything in Isaiah's life shifted. Again, this pastor in New York, Tim Keller, he says the difference between the concept and the reality of God is all about glory. God is a concept, is not weighty. It's lighter than you are. 
You are heavier than your concepts of God. You're more substantial and you're more permanent and you're more real. So you know what we do with concepts of God? We slot that God into our lives. And he becomes our religious part of our life. But our business life doesn't change. Our moral life doesn't change. Our family life doesn't change. See, what we do is we take these concepts that we value, and any particular culture has different sets of concepts it's value. Currently, the greatest values in our culture are things like love and tolerance. We take these concepts and we project them up and we define God by these pre-existing ideals that fit very neatly into the lives we live. And we even like to think about how they challenge us, but they only challenge us in the ways we want to be challenged. If you believe in God and it really doesn't change you that much, then the God you believe in is a concept. It's not a real God. You've merely fashioned God into your own image. God is creator, or God is love, or benevolent force, or a tolerant grandfather. You take your pick. You slot him into your goals and we slot him into our agenda and he supports our schedule and he supports our financial intentions and he supports our dating intentions and he supports all the ideas and goals we have for family and for future and where we live and how we live and what we do for a living. Plenty of people in our culture are religious. They read the Bible and they pray. Why? Because they won't help in reaching their goals. And Christianity offers help. And so we project an image of God and then bow down to that. But when you encounter the real God, if, if it's the real God, by very nature of the notion that it's God, that's heavier than you are. That's weightier than you are and things shift and things change. That's verse 4. Look at verse 4. The foundations of the threshold shook. Why? Because the glory of God is heavier than the heaviest part of the building. Every single person that has really met God. I think about Alec. Alec says when he came to know God, one time he told me he had, it was at the end of his college career, he thought, man, this changes everything. So he bought a ticket to China to get to China to work things out. Because he realized that God was, this rewrites everything. It rewrites the way you interpret your past and the way you plan your future. Things you used to believe and hold dear can change. It changes what you think. It it changes the, the things that in the Bible formerly seemed unreal and unbelievable and out of order. Things that you think are okay, now you realize they're wrong. So what about you? Is God a concept that fits into one of the categories of your life? Or can you honestly see that there is a heavy mass at the center of your life around which your whole life bends? Is there a gravitational center that changes, that warps you, that bends you? That transforms you. See, that's the idea of the glory of God. It is weighty. 
In the next four verses, we see how this impacts Isaiah. Look at verse 5, 6, and 7, and 8. Now, as you're turning there, remember that when Isaiah went to church, this was a day of the week. It was a week of the year. It was a year of his life like many other moments. He was expecting the same as usual, but this time things changed. Verse 5, And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am a man of, I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What's this about? I grew up in a small suburb outside of Houston named Laporte. I made pretty good grades. I went to college. I did good in college. Went to graduate school. I did good in graduate school. I got lots of A's. I moved to England to work on a PhD. My PhD program in England, like most PhD programs in theology, you have to know a lot of languages to get in. In my particular program, I had to have a fluency in four languages. So I get into this program, and I'm feeling really good about myself. And then suddenly, I'm surrounded by people. Well, let's just say, I no longer felt good about myself. (laughs) I didn't even feel average anymore. Do you know what it's like when you feel pretty? Some of you do. Some of us. We don't. Or when you feel fast or when you feel smart and you're suddenly surrounded by people that are far prettier or far faster or far smarter. Do you know what that's like? It can traumatize a person. Really, and this this happened in our doctoral program in England, you could map it. When people entered a program, they often were big fish in a small pond. And then suddenly you get into a place where you are so far out of your league. You know, I had a friend. He learned a language every summer. When I knew him, he was fluent in 13 languages. He would move somewhere for a summer and become fluent. He didn't forget languages. I've learned Hebrew like three times. Which it would be funny if it was a joke, but it's reality. <laughs> I've got another friend who, who, whenever the phone rings, she talks in a different language from whatever friend is calling her from a different part of the world. I, I read stuff, and I have no idea what the sentence means, and I've got to read the whole book, and 10 more like it. And I, don't even, I can't even interpret. I don't even have the vocabulary for the title, much less the book. I've had friends who moved to Nashville and experienced this. They were the best guitar player in their town, and they get to Nashville, and their mailman plays guitar better than they do. I mean, this is for real. You, you, if anybody, if you've experienced this, it's remarkable. Isaiah's book is a literary masterpiece. There are parts of Isaiah that you could hold up there by, by Othello's speeches, You could hold up there with the greatest works of literary art in our world and they outshine them all. Isaiah, who wrote this book, was an artistic genius. He had a way with words that made him a powerful all-star in an oral culture. But when he gets into the presence of God, 
of this greatness that is infinitely bigger than he is. Isaiah's greatest gift, his way with words, is shattered. In the presence of greatness, when you compare yourself to it, it crushes you. It crushes your self-image. Whatever you were good at becomes so insignificant. Woe is me, I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips. The thing that I do better than anybody in this culture, the thing that has made me a rock star, now that I look at it, it's not even good, it's awfully bad. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? Why does he come to this point of just shattered self-esteem? For, it's a causal statement, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When God is a concept, gives way to God as a reality, and you see yourself in comparison to true beauty and true honesty and true kindness, when you encounter God, your whole life is revealed as far short of His glory and of goodness, and it shatters you. And all you can do is hate yourself. All you can do is turn inward in self-loathing. All you can do is pronounce a curse on yourself. That's verse 5. Woe is me. That's just a fancy way of saying, I am damned. I'm cursed. I'm lost. I'm petty and rude and selfish and angry. All you can do is recognize how ungrateful and cruel and proud you are. And whoever encounters the reality of God, not the concept of God, but this weighty, significant, real God, this person is shattered and traumatized. This is how you know you've encountered the real God and not your idol. See, the difference between true Christianity and civic religion is profound brokenness and repentance. And we're in a culture of mediocrity when our religion does not bring us to that. But as soon as Isaiah curses himself, this is what's wonderful. Look look at verse 6. As soon as he curses himself, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Not, oh, you're not that bad. Not, you're, oh, you're okay. No, you really are that bad. It really is true what you've come to see. But now it's gone. See, that's a total different approach. As soon as Isaiah is traumatized, as soon as his self-esteem gets as low as it can possibly get, the minute that he confesses his sin, the minute he is broken and and realizes his utter failure to measure up to God, that moment, then, the seraphim flies to him. Now, this is a universal pattern. The only way that you or I or anyone can encounter God, the real God, not the concept of God. The only way we can do that is through complete brokenness and absolute honesty. 
That's why our service starts with us crying out to God to cleanse our hearts. And then we're on our knees, bent down in the only proper posture for that moment. But then as soon as we do it, the grace of God, we're assured of his forgiveness. And then we stand. We stand with heads held high in the glory, not of our personage, but in the glory of his forgiveness of us. This is universal. As soon as Isaiah confessed the truth about his own brokenness, God exploded into his life. The angel flies straight to him and cleanses him and cleans him and purifies him and takes away every crumb of his guilt and shame. Complete, permanent forgiveness. Behold. In other words, pay attention. You're not expecting this. It's unbelievable. But guess what? Your guilt. You really are guilty. But guess what? It's taken away. Not ignored. Not washed over. But yanked away from your life. Your sin is atoned for. How are we changed? How do we experience deep inner transformation? By encountering The reality of God. And you know you've encountered the reality of God. When you have been utterly shattered. And you have confessed your complete sinfulness to God. And you've been forgiven. Now notice what happens when God's glory meets our need. Verse 9. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. It always reminds me, Welcome back, Cotter. It's like Warshat, Warshat, Warshat. Pick me, pick me, you know, on the front row. Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. Look, as soon as Isaiah confessed his unworthiness, God cleansed him, removed the guilt, and then immediately God offers for Isaiah to be a part of his work in this world. He doesn't keep him down. He invites him now to join him. God invites Isaiah, join me in my work of the kingdom. There's something really important here to see. Look what happens to Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't even know where God is sending him. He interrupts God like Horshak does. Who will I send? Who will go for me? Oh, pick me. Where's he going to go? He has no clue. What's it going to require? He doesn't know. He's just so... He's the little kid in kindergarten. The teacher says, no, I have a question. And the kids raise their hand. You don't even know the question yet. But it's it's that childlike zeal and joy. Do you notice how he went from cursing himself to this deep inner freedom? This absence of self-reflectiveness, this complete presence to the moment, and this ability to say, here, I'll do it, I'll do it. And he doesn't care what God wants him to do. Why? Because he's unconditionally available to God. You see, when God is no longer a concept, when you've encountered God as the real living person in a personal way, then you have this deep, irresistible need to be unconditionally available to him. To move wherever he wants you to move. To sell whatever he wants you to sell. To break up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend if he just says the word. To give out of your, to give money and finances and time and resources in a sacrificial way, in a generous way, instead of just out of your leftovers. 
You have this, this ability to bend your entire life around God. Your plans, your agenda, they're all negotiable from here on out. Why? Because God is the rock and you're the puddle. He's heavier. He's more important. Think about Abraham. Those of you who've grown up in church and you know the scriptures. One day, Abraham has this encounter with God that resulted in Abraham moving from his house and his family and his country. And when he packs up to move, he doesn't know where he's going. God just says to Abraham, get ready and go. And on the journey, I'll tell you where you're going. Now think how radical that is for those of us who are addicted to control. Abraham was like, okay. I'm radically available. Think about the church in the book of Acts, if you're familiar with this part of the Bible, where the entire community began to sell their extra houses, their extra camels, or cars, or whatever, in order to provide for someone else in their community. And this was not a culture of luxury. It's, it's not like they were moving from the upper end of upper class to the middle of upper class. I mean, they were, they were giving things that required recovery. I mean, they were making gifts that required their whole life to recover from what they had just done. We could go on and on, story after story of people who've encountered God and the result is that their entire life shifts. Everything becomes available to God. All of this kind of notion, this is a critical aspect of the Christian promise of transformation. Deep inner change. I pray that you have encountered the real God and that you will open your heart and pursue such an encounter because there's life in it. Real life. Let's pray.